0: If you don't know me, my name is Seichi. Uh, I serve on staff at the church, but here in Beacon as well. Um, one of the leaders. Um, and if you are jumping in, uh, we're in a series in the book of Jonah, and we're going to look at chapter three today. <coughs> um, at the outset, I just want to give a quick shout out to Tyler, actually, from Long Beach. I think he's the only one in this group where um, he's heard me preach this past weekend, uh, at, a, at a different retreat, and so he gets to hear me for the fourth time, and so he, he has a lot of patience. Um, I'm sure there's a, a story or two that he's heard before. Um, I want to I share a story of something that happened earlier this week. Uh, it was kind of a dumb moment for me. Um, I was washing my hands, got soap on my fingers, and I noticed an eye booger in my right eye, and so I took it out, uh, but then it was because of that that my eye started to get irritated. And so, slowly but surely, uh, my eye starts to just get red. Um, and it, it stings. Uh, and so, I'm in pain, um, and, and I try to wash out whatever's in there just to rinse out my eye. But my mind starts to go down this path of man, what if this becomes far worse? <laughs> Than I anticipated. Uh, and I start to think the worst, right? Like, losing vision? Come on. Like, I was just washing my hands. Um, <clears throat> and uh, it, it was actually the day after that, that um, for a separate reason, uh, I came down with a, a slight fever, uh, and that just wiped out my entire day. I spent most of that day sleeping. Um, so my, my plans were thrown out the window. I was hoping to work on this sermon, Uh, But that got pushed back. So I share these two instances uh, because I think you resonate with me uh, when you get sick or you get hurt. Um, And these are reminders in our lives um, of how thankful we are for good health, right? Uh, Or an injury prompts us to be grateful for that part of your body that normally functions without pain. Um, And despite the discomfort of of that illness or that injury um, and how incredibly uncomfortable uh, and unpleasant it can be, I think that there is a level of thankfulness as well because it's in that weakness, that limitation, and that point of helplessness that makes us depend on Christ, depend on God all the more. And that's a good place to be. And we need this book, uh, the book of Jonah, and we need chapter three tonight because it is far too easy for mercy to become too ordinary. When mercy is assumed, when mercy is expected and it becomes normal, that is when mercy no longer becomes precious to us. And that's a dangerous place to be. And so this chapter helps us see how merciful God is to undeserving sinners like you and me. So let me uh, open our time in a word of prayer. (laughs) Father, thank you God for bringing us here together tonight uh, that we can go to your word that we can see your mercy toward Jonah, toward the Ninevites. And in seeing your word, we can see your mercy toward us. So I pray that you would open our eyes, not just so that we can understand more of your mercy, but so that you would stir our hearts, that we would worship you for your mercy. We ask this in your son's precious name. Amen. Amen. Now, um, We're looking at chapter 3 today, so if you haven't already, turn in your Bibles there with me. And as you go there, I'll give a quick recap um, if you're unfamiliar with the book. Uh, Chapter 1, we saw that Jonah, the prophet, is told by God to go and preach a message to Nineveh, but Jonah essentially says no. He gets on a ship and he goes the exact opposite direction. The Lord causes a great storm, the sailors are terrified for their lives, and Jonah is sleeping, um, and, and Jonah just tells them, you know what, this storm is because of me, just throw me out into the sea, now get rid of me, and the storm will die down, and basically that's what happens, and the sailors fear God, the God of Israel, uh, when Jonah doesn't, even though he claims to fear God, all right, but God's not done with this prophet. In chapter 2, we see that God sends a, a fish to swallow him, not to eat him, but to save him and deliver him from drowning. <clears throat> and Pastor Francis last week talked about how Jonah prays in the belly of the fish. And in his state of desperation, he cries out to the Lord and the Lord mercifully hears him. But in this prayer, he pointed out what you notice is this absence of confession. He is he is not confessing his sin, right? Um. But, but God is seeking to do a work in Jonah, and that's why God is not done with him. And so he spits Jonah out onto the dry land. And so we come to chapter 3, and this is where we'll see more of his mercy. And I laid out for you three uh, specific ways, and we see more of God's mercy uh, in this story. So let's read chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he rose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Now, this chapter parallels chapter one. And so, you can mark this conveniently as the second half of the book. There's a lot of similar things happening in both these chapters, such as Jonah being commissioned by God, and you have sequences of speech. In chapter 1, for example, you have the dialogue between Jonah and the sailors. Chapter 3, you have Jonah's proclamation, and then the king's proclamation. In both chapters, you have Gentiles turning to God, and then at the end of the chapter, the Lord averting some crisis whether it's the storm or God relenting his judgment. But as we begin this chapter, we ought to approach it slowly. And I know we're familiar with this book and how it turns out, but imagine you are hearing it read for the first time. As you read the first few verses, you see that that's almost the same language as the beginning of chapter one. And so there's a bit of deja vu. You've heard this before. And there's some suspense built in. You wonder, you know, is this going to be a cycle of sin in Jonah's life? Or is there going to be a level of spiritual progress? And the author is building this up to the fourth chapter. Even in the first few few verses, um, we see the similarities but we also note the differences. And those differences in the parallelism, they show the significance in this second attempt of Jonah's commission. So take, for example, in verse 1, the expression, the second time. That's just one word in Hebrew, can be translated again. Jonah is unique as a prophet to receive a second chance to obey God's command. Because prophet's are usually judged more quickly and severely because of their special calling, because of their privileged status as recipients of God's revelation. So why does God give this second chance to Jonah? Well, one, we learned in chapter one that Jonah thought that he could escape his mission to Nineveh. And he thought he could could escape it through God's judgment. He wanted to go into the sea. He wanted to die. He would rather face God's judgment and death in the sea, then go and proclaim a message of repentance to the people he hated. <clears throat> God is showing Jonah that you cannot manipulate neither his mercy nor his judgment so that Jonah could have his way. Secondly, God is showing mercy to Jonah as a prophet, um, likely because this heart of mercy is exactly what God wants to grow in Jonah. God is still committed to doing a work in Jonah. So let's note another difference between the first commission and the second one. In the first commission, Jonah is commanded to cry against Nineveh, whereas the second time he is commanded to proclaim to Nineveh. And I know that in the ESV it says call out against it, uh, but in the Hebrew um, it's the word to. And uh, I don't want to make this mean more than it does, but I think the tone seems to shift a bit from condemnation to something that's more neutral. And I think that's foreshadowing God's relenting of judgment. And in addition to this, you see that in the second time around, the reason for this proclamation is absent. The first time the reason given is because the wickedness of the Ninevites have come up before the Lord. But you don't see that reason given in the second time the commission is given. And that's because, again, you see there a shift in emphasis, an emphasis from the wickedness of the Ninevites to God being in control over the message and the messenger. God is saying, Jonah, I'm going to tell you uh, what to tell them. Jonah, you're not in control, and you're not free to change the message. There's a last difference uh, that I want to note. Uh, in the first commission and in that chapter, you see Jonah going down, right? This theme of going down, down to Joppa, down into the ship, down into the hold of the ship, and then ultimately down into the heart of the seas and the belly of the fish, right? But in chapter three, we see that actually Jonah, he goes to Nineveh, right? He he obeys. Uh, verse three, he, he goes to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. There is a stamp of divine approval here. <laughs> now, this gives the impression that Jonah is completely changed. Um, but we already noted in chapter 2 um, that his obedience might not have been a full-fledged obedience, and we begin to see more of that in this chapter. For example, Nineveh is said to be a great city that's most likely referring to its size. It's three days' journey in breadth, but Jonah goes only a day's journey. He doesn't even reach the city's center. And later on in verse 6 we learn that the king of Nineveh hears the message secondhand through his citizens, not from Jonah himself. How else can we tell that Jonah may have just been outwardly compliant, not full wholeheartedly obedient? Well, consider his brief message, verse 4. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now we're going to leave aside the question Was this all that Jonah preached? And we're going to focus on what he did say. said 40 days. Now, what's the significance of this number? Now, to the Hebrew mind, there would have been several associations with this number. And one is that it takes you back to pre-Israelite days, to the time of the flood, which lasted 40 days and 40 nights. It is a reminder that the flood was God's judgment on the world Because as it says in Genesis 6, 5, every intention of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. The flood was an expression of God's judgment (coughs) on man. Um, Not only that, another event that readily comes to mind is what happens after the Israelites make a golden calf and worship it. Remember Mount Sinai, Moses is given the Ten Commandments. Right after that, the Israelites make a a calf, a graven image, and worship it. Now, what does Moses do? He spends 40 days, 40 nights on Mount Sinai interceding. Um, He goes up to the mountain eating neither bread nor drinking water, which is exactly what the Ninevites do in this chapter as well. And Moses is interceding for his people so that the Lord doesn't consume them in his wrath. Now this role of intercession, it should have been Jonah's role as a prophet. He should have been praying that God might spare Nineveh. But instead we find out his heart. He's complaining to God why he didn't destroy Nineveh. So this 40 day uh, period is a reminder of two possible fates for Nineveh. It symbolizes judgment as in the flood, but it also symbolizes a relenting of judgment as in Moses' intercession for Israel at Sinai. All right, let's consider the second part of Jonah's brief message. The word overthrown. That verb, that word recalls the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. The same word is used to describe what happened to those two cities. And if you think back to Genesis 18 and 19, those two cities were known for their rampant wickedness. And God says that he rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire. He, he overthrew those cities. And this is what Jonah anticipates for the Ninevites. He is likely going to Nineveh to proclaim this message, believing that Nineveh's destruction is inevitable. Now, what else does Jonah say in this message? We don't know. We're, We're not given it. You know, was this just a summary? Maybe. You know, is this all that Jonah said? It could be. But what we do know is that what we are given is enough to give the impression of his message that this was in essence what was communicated to the Ninevites. And so with that said, um, I think we can still say, um, even though we can't make much of what was not said, one thing to note is that prophets are usually careful to validate their messages by saying, thus says Yahweh. This is the word of God. But we don't find Jonah saying this. And it's not until we get to chapter four, that it becomes crystal clear. We finally hear in chapter four, verse two, the verbal objection given. We know Jonah's heart motivation um, when he refused the first time and his apparent obedience the second time. Jonah's not going out of a merciful heart. It's out of a heart of condemnation. And so we see here that his heart was not completely transformed. Um, It is outward compliance. His, his obedience is not a perfect one, but God still blesses it to accomplish his purposes. We see God's lavish mercy uh, for even a prophet like, like Jonah. Have you ever felt uh, like you probably didn't make the, the wisest um, decision? Or maybe you went about a process, um, but not in the most gone honoring way. But he still showed you mercy to you in that decision. Maybe it was when you were bringing up a sensitive issue with a friend and, and how all of that unraveled. God still showed you mercy and showed your friend mercy in that. Maybe it was how you handled a conflict with, with one of your parents' probably didn't approach it in the right attitude, but the Lord showed you honor in that, mercy to you in that. When I was a senior in college, um, I prayerfully applied for a program that would take me to Japan and to spend at least a year there teaching. I ended up teaching two years. But the challenge was that program was known to send you out to basically the boonies of Japan, the countryside, Um, and if you know Japan as an unreached people group, you know that if you're out there, um, especially in the rural areas, that you will likely struggle to, to find a church um, and, and a good church to be a part of. And so with the risk in mind, um, I still prayerfully applied. Uh, but one thing that I regret uh, is that for, for big things such as you know, a, a change in your, your career or, um, or even, even a relationship. We, we want to seek the input of others, right? We want other people weighing into our decisions, people who know us, people who care for us. But um, there was one person at the time in my life where I feel like I should have just sought his wisdom um, and input on, um, but I anticipated what he would say. And so um, I, I didn't bring it up to him. And it wasn't until after that I was well into the application process that I basically just reported it to him, right? Um, and oftentimes I think we can do that uh, in the hardness of our hearts. Um, instead of really weighing people's wisdom and counsel, um, we've already made a decision in our hearts and we're just informing people, hey, this is what I want to do. Um, and so I'm not saying that um, you know, we have to agree with every single counsel uh, that's ever given to us. But I know in that, in my heart, um, I was not willing to, to weigh that counsel, right? And it was something that bothered my conscience. <clears throat> and so despite that process of, of going through that application and being accepted um, and, and uh, going to Japan Um, And it wasn't a perfect obedience on my part by any means. But even in that folly, God showed me much mercy. He showed me much mercy um, throughout my time in Japan. But it just goes to show how patient and merciful our God is and how he's not done with us, how he doesn't just toss us aside and carry out his plan with someone else who's more humble, more obedient But he's committed to working in us, using you, sanctifying you. And How has God shown the same kind of mercy to you in your imperfect obedience? Now, secondly, God is merciful to warn us and lead us to repentance. We see in our passage, um, God did not have to send a message to Nineveh. He did not have to send a messenger. He did not have to give them 40 days to repent. That God would do any of this is a mercy. We have to remember again that the people of Nineveh were a cruel, oppressive, and violent people. It would have been perfectly just for God to have sent a plague and just decimated the whole nation without warning. But God shows mercy to them by giving them opportunity to repent. And God's mercy of warning does lead Nineveh to repentance. And so we'll note several marks of repentance here. We see first that they had faith. Verse five, the people of Nineveh believed God. And that's likely an allusion to Genesis 15, six, where it says Abraham believed Yahweh, believed God. It it points to faith before Israel even existed, before the covenant of circumcision. It just shows the primacy of faith above all else. And this is important to note um, because even before the covenant of circumcision identified the people of Israel, it was always understood that a relationship with the living God was always based on faith. And that's what Nineveh shows toward God. We see next that repentance was widespread It didn't matter where where you were on Nineveh's social hierarchy. Everyone everyone was humbled, from the greatest to the least of them. Even the king, whose actions symbolize that he was one with the people. In verse 6, it says, he arose from his throne. He laid aside his robe. That is, he removed the wealth, the prestige, the royal status that came with the throne, and he replaced it with sackcloth sat on the ashes, showing that the king is indistinguishable from the people, one with them. I mean, even animals are involved in these acts of contrition. And you might think that this is strange, right, that animals uh, are involved in this because they're not morally responsible creatures. But we should view this in light of the larger role of creation in the book of Jonah, You know, we've already seen in chapter one how the raging sea is subject to the Lord's power. In chapter two, how God appoints a fish to save Jonah from drowning. In in chapter four, we'll see how God appoints a plant, a worm, and the wind to carry out his purposes in Jonah's heart and life. The point is that even nature and animals, they are all agents of God to carry out whatever God wants done. That animals will demonstrate submission to God's sovereignty. We see another mark of repentance on the part of the Ninevites. The Ninevites, they aren't just performing rituals to appease an angry deity. You know, public mourning and, and fasting. That's not all there is to it, right? It's not just all show, just so that they can satisfy an angry God. The king calls for ethical change. He calls each person to turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. And what does it say in verse 10 that God takes notice of? It says, God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way. And that's when God relented. More than just seeing fasting, people crying out, God saw that they actually turned from their wicked way. It was a repentance that involved both their attitude and action. A final mark of repentance that we see here. In verse 9, we read the king of Nineveh say, Who knows? Who knows? God may relent, he may not. This expression, uh, who knows, this rhetorical question occurs 10 times um, in Hebrew. And only once, only once is the speaker a Gentile. That's, That's here in this case. And only one of two times where the desired change in God's plan actually happens. And this is one of those two times. And the point here in saying this, who knows, is that the king acknowledges that God has the absolute freedom to execute divine justice or to extend mercy. These acts of contrition, what the Ninevites do, they don't require God to relent from judgment. And we saw a taste of this when in chapter one, the captain of the ship um, says to Jonah, perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we don't perish, perhaps. In any true repentance, there is an acknowledgement that God ultimately has the absolute freedom to do as he pleases. And so when you read this account of the Ninevites, this radical, widespread repentance. Does this example of repentance seem too extreme for you? Personally, is this how we have responded to God's mercy? With a fierceness and a commitment to turn from evil in our own lives and turn to Him? I can recall times when this was more of the case in my life, when re- repentance made more of its mark, you know, in the use of my words, went from swearing to, to you know, more host, wholesome language, in my consumption of media, in indulging in sexual sin, in a, at a low point in my time in Japan, <clears throat> and I say low point, uh, knowing that it's somewhat of a relative term, um, because I was attending church, I was in fellowship with a brother close in age. There, I was reading the Word and praying regularly, but something was lacking, <clears throat> um, and it was an earnest pursuit of people in, in my own in life. You know, pursuing brothers uh, in the church for fellowship, um, and you can imagine, uh, you know, how I went from being surrounded by so much uh, a fellowship in college. Um, on-campus fellowship, to to someplace like Japan. There's a dearth of fellowship, right, in another country, in another language. So I knew in my head how much of a challenge this would be, but I had no idea how much I would be affected um, personally by the significant lack of fellowship there. And it wasn't until a relational conflict really just brought this out. And the passage that really convicted me was Hebrews 3, 12 to 13, says this, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And I wasn't on the verge of apostasy, of abandoning the the faith, but I could feel the deceitfulness of sin. the the hardening of my heart. Um, God had to wake me up. He's designed his church, he's designed his people to show fervent love for one another. And he was telling me, where is that in your life, Seichi? Where is your fervent pursuit of others? And it was at that point that I was really earnestly reaching out to people, friends back home, um, setting up calls. I even started having weekly calls with my mom, which I have never done before, even through college. Um, she's a believer. Um, so that there could just be that mutual exhortation. Right? I, was, I was more earnest in, in going to the word. I remember coming back from work um, straight to the word, just desperate to be with God. It is, it is a mercy when the affliction that God brings into our lives That it can also serve as a warning to alert us to danger, to wean us off from the world. God's saying, you cannot keep going down this path. It will lead to ruin. And in his mercy, he leads us to repentance. We'll move on. Uh, So God is merciful to use an imperfect servant and bless our imperfect obedience. God is merciful to warn us from danger and lead us to repentance Third, we'll see that God is merciful to take the focus off ourselves and onto him, onto God. Now notice in verse three, how Nineveh is described. Um, it says an exceedingly great city. And in the footnotes, you might see, read uh, literally a great city to God. Uh, it is a city that belongs to God. The God is sovereign over it and he has a plan for it. Now consider again the message that Jonah proclaims, Um, not only is it a warning of judgment, it can also be read as predictive prophecy. (laughs) So the word for overturn also carries the sense to change or reform so that an alternative reading is 40 days until Nineveh is reformed. And there's a sense of ambiguity in that sentence. And that ambiguity is is not unknown in Israelite prophecy. So the point that I'm making is that God is using his message, whether for destruction of the Ninevites or for reformation, so that God can accomplish his plan for Nineveh. And finally, we note in verse 6 and beyond, actually, how the king is referred. He's called the king of Nineveh. And that's very unusual because the normal way you de- uh, normal designation for him in the rest of the Old Testament is the king of Assyria. That's how the Old Testament identifies him. The king of Assyria. Now, what, what does the change signify? The, by calling him the king of Nineveh, which is a city, the author minimizes the king's importance and power and just draws out his subordination to the true sovereign one. To whom Nineveh belongs. So, Nineveh might be a great city in its size, but it belongs to God. And whether the city is overthrown in judgment or reformed in its repentance, the outcome of the city, that belongs to God. The highest authority in Nineveh, the king, is as lowly and humble as the least in Nineveh, and the king is subservient to God. The focus throughout this chapter is on God's sovereignty. It is God commissioning his prophet to a wicked nation. It is God's message that Jonah is commanded to proclaim. It is to God that the city of Nineveh ultimately belongs. It is God who is truly king and sovereign over all other kings. It is God who has absolute freedom to bring judgment as he is warned or to relent from calamity. And Jonah, and most likely for you and I, um, we, we don't struggle with knowing that God is sovereign over all the earth. But what we do struggle and what Jonah struggled with is the idea that God's mercy is as broad as his sovereignty. Right? Um, we are very much like Jonah in this. Um, we are not merciful people. And at our church, at Lighthouse, we often refer to this as transactional love. It it is second nature. It is our default uh, to, to treat people how they treat us, right? But anyone can love those we deem lovable. Jonah loved his people Israel. Jonah loved those who he felt deserved to be loved. And he despised his enemies whom he felt did not deserve to be loved. Now, let's just think of our relationships in the church. Uh, We love maybe uh, when, especially when we're in a new setting, but if we're alone, um, we appreciate it when people would come up to us, right? And warmly greet us and genuinely desire to get to know us. But we find it hard for us to show the same kind of mercy to others, right? To, To go out of our way to talk to someone uh, who we might not want to feel like talking to. We love it when people ask us how we're doing, right, and show interest in our lives and the things that we care about. But we find it hard, um, and we quickly tune out when someone starts to share something that's either boring to us or just not relevant, right, not particularly interesting to us. We're not as inclined to show the same kind of mercy to others. Now think of those who are harder to love. <clears throat> Maybe this someone in the church has hurt you. It is quite easy instead of being merciful and charitable uh, to, to just avoid them, right? Um, because we think that the absence of conflict is peace but what we're really doing is we're just punishing them by not being as friendly or warm. Um, or we think of people who might be harder to get along with, whether it's just the clash of personalities. Um, we, we find it hard to extend mercy to them. Or we find it hard for people who have flaked out on us, people who you've invited out to things, to, to hanging out with you, but bailed on you. It's hard to be merciful, easy to be uncharitable toward them. <clears throat> And what our difficulty to be merciful toward others, what that says, uh, it says more about us and our understanding of God's mercy than it does about the condition of the person. Right? And maybe our struggle isn't just that we're unmerciful, um, but I think we also tend to struggle to believe that God is truly merciful toward us. It's easy to... for us to focus on our shortcomings, on our failures, on our incompetence, um, I can easily think of, of a list of qualities and traits in my own life where, you know, I wish um, that I had. Um, and I can resonate with Moses, for example. You remember when God met him in the burning bush and commissioned Moses to deliver his people from slavery? And Moses says, I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. That's me, you know, I can resonate with that. I wish I was more articulate. I wish my mind worked faster, that I can think more quickly. I wish I was a better storyteller. You know, I wish I had a better memory so that I could tell stories better, um, so that I could remember people's names easier. I wish I was quicker to process things emotionally. Um, And and the list goes on and on, right? But what happens when I do this? What happens when that's the direction of my thoughts? It is inward and and it is no longer on God. I no longer see God. He is minimized. When I compare myself, for example, with the abilities of others, it robs me of the joy of seeing God's strength in my weakness. It robs me of the joy of marveling at his mercy that he would use me, save me, and love me. In God's mercy, he shifts our focus off ourselves and onto Christ. In the New Testament, uh, Jesus brings up our passage here of the men of Nineveh repenting. The context is that the scribes and Pharisees see Jesus performing miracle after miracle, healing a man with a withered hand, healing a blind and a mute person, and, and they still deny Jesus being the Messiah. And this is what Jesus tells them, verse 41, to those who are hardened, he says, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The men of Nineveh who repented, they will condemn the generation of the Jews in Jesus' day because they saw the glory of God in the person of Jesus right in front of their face, and they still rejected Christ. And all that the Ninevites were given was was bare bones, a scrap of revelation. They got a message from a foreign prophet declaring just five words in the Hebrew, as far as we know, and they repented. And you and I have something far greater than what the Ninevites were given. We have the full revelation of Jesus's life. We we have his sacrificial death. We have his resurrection, his intercession for us presently. We have the promise of his coming and his reward. We do not deserve any of that. And yet we are given all of that. And this is all sheer mercy. But we don't think much of mercy when we're strong, right? When we are relying on our abilities. And many of us in this room are very able. What happens when we rely on our resourcefulness, on our ability uh, to, figure out things on our own, our social adeptness, on our ability to argue, on your ability to be good with your words, on your extrovertedness, your friendliness, your ability to connect with people, your ability to be self-disciplined, to hunker down, get stuff done, your ability to be efficient. What happens when we rely on our strengths? We don't think much of mercy. There is a streak in all of us of wanting to glory in our strengths and abilities, that I can earn God's favor. But when that happens, that is a misunderstanding of mercy, to think that our performance qualifies us to receive his mercy. That's when mercy no longer becomes mercy. But God doesn't leave us there in our pride. A running theme in our messages has been James 4. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. In God's mercy and kindness, he breaks us. Right? He is merciful to help us feel our inadequacies, our weaknesses, our sins, so that we can treasure more of his mercy. And so when you failed to love again, when you've messed up again, when things don't go your way, when you don't get what you want, let all of those instances lead you and I to Christ. That Christ, he doesn't leave us because we're not good enough. He doesn't condemn us because we sinned again. That he bore all our sins that God did not relent his wrath toward him, but Christ took it all, that Christ rose again so that we would never have to fear death, that we could rise with him, that Christ intercedes for us now so that your faith will not fail, that Christ is with you presently in the dark valley, And that Christ is committed to leading you through that dark valley to glory. That Christ is still using you to draw people to himself. That Christ has given you the spirit so that you know you're a child of the Father in heaven. That you have ready access to his throne for help in time of need. That Christ has given you his words to give you hope. And that Christ has promised to keep you to the end. None of these things and more you and I deserve, but Christ has given us, and this is his mercy. And so we've seen in this chapter that ultimately uh, it, it's not about Jonah um, being righteous, obeying a second time. This chapter isn't even about how repentant Nineveh is. This chapter ultimately focuses and and gives our eyes to how merciful God is. All right, let's pray. <clears throat> Gracious Father in heaven, <clears throat> Father, thank you for the many mercies that we have in Christ. And God, it is to our shame that we do not Meditate often on every spiritual blessing that we've received in Christ. And every day of our lives, you promise us that your mercy, your mercies are new and that your mercies follow us to the end of our days. And so, God, may we be a people uh, who are in wonder, who are in awe, and who marvel day after day at your mercy, both in the valley and in the mountains when it is hard and when it is easy to marvel at your mercy for us, Lord. So I pray that you bless the rest of our time and our small group's discussions. May it be fruitful and unto your glory in your son's name, amen.